Who's the more foolish? The fool or the fool who follows him or Lossie? I've got a bad feeling about this. This is The 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highs and lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us today is Sam's favorite guest, Lozzie, a.k.a. Losbert, a.k.a. Losbert Ignatius Tremington IV. Was that really the name that you had last time, or is that a new name? Who's to say? <laughs> I don't know. Lozzie's name keeps getting it's more and more grandiose. It's not my grandiose. name, it's Lozzie's name. Yes. You should keep up with it. I, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. If Ryan is our producer and Elise is our emoji manager, I feel like you should, we should either give you the role of just monkey off my backlogs, Losbert, like that's a title as well as your name, or we could give you the role of whipping boy, because I feel like that is also something that comes up a lot in these episodes. I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, we could just keep it super simple and super referential and just make Lazi the uh, the minister of silly names. All right. So Lazi, as you know, because you've been listening to our episodes, I assume, we have been starting <laughs> off each episode talking about holidays and the aftertimes. And I know because I've talked to you about this before that you have several traditions that you like to observe around the holidays. What are some of the things that you are looking forward to this holiday season? One of the uh, fun and game things about having children is you tend to start changing how Christmas or holiday season happens. So we've started trying to like make our own new new things to do for around the around the season. So we normally are split either we're at my wife's parents' um, family or uh, or my family. My old Christmases used to always be big family events. My my mum has seven brothers, and uh, so <laughs> we used to have big uh, big family get-togethers, which were always lots of lovely food, lots of presents, lots of games of risk. Lots of chaos. Lots of chaos. I, I also come from a big extended family. I have 14 cousins on my dad's side, so I'm very, very familiar with this scenario. <laughs> We'd play spoons, though. Spoons? For like yes. music or um... no? Do you not know the game Spoons? It was actually a band from my grandmother's house at one point because we were getting a little too violent with it. But it's kind of like musical chairs, except for with spoons. And okay. once you get a certain number of cards, you like pass cards around, and when you get a certain combination, you have to grab a spoon, and then everyone else has to try to grab the spoon, and whoever doesn't have one gets an s and then a p and then an o and then an o oh, and then you're okay. out once you spell spoons and um let's just say somebody was dragged across <laughs> a table and left a belt groove in the table which is why my grandmother banned it and i accidentally and i would like to point out that i apologized for this several times snatched one of my best friend's glasses off his face so like i i was going for a spoon I was not going for his glasses. I want that to be very, very clear. <laughs> so yeah, my family gatherings were a little violent. <laughs> That's uh, wonderful. Um, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> we're, not, I... <laughs> we're not competitive at all. <laughs> I have two questions for yes. you, Lossie. Yes. Question one. How's that uh, Nintendo Switch working out for y'all? 
It's going pretty well. It is the obsession of my two uh, my two kids. So they play an awful lot of... Well, it used to be Mario Kart. It then shifted into Among Us, which was a very good investment because it's like three quid. Um, yeah. and, and they're now <laughs> obsessed with Splatoon 3, which uh, right. my eldest bought for himself with his birthday money. This was, I, I, I am correct, that was from our very first episode, wasn't it? That was two years ago, right? No, it was last year. It was X-Men. Oh, it was X-Men last time. year. Okay. All right. Was We've that, only what, known was that our, for a Was year. that our first yes, episode? I know. Ah, well, I was half right. It feels like <laughs> he's been in our lives for a lot longer, but yeah. I just need to make a list of all the people who have never had a chance to talk about Fast and Furious with us. I know. I have not seen that many Fast and Furious movies. I've seen well, like you've got a, a few months yeah. before the next one. So before it completely takes over the discourse in the Discord. Question two. Yes. You're from the country that has objectively the the two worst Christmas songs ever attributed to it. Right? Mm, depending. But do they know it's Christmas? Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. But that's not what I want to ask about today. What I want to ask about today is you also have a very particular musical tradition that happens at the holidays. I know nothing about what's happening now. I don't know if it's one of those years where nobody cares or whether there's some sort of investment in uh, early 90s grunge. I don't, you know, protest or whatever. How's the holiday number one shaping up? I have no idea. <laughs> so right. disconnected. And that is our but, British but, music correspondent, Lasberg. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. No, no, no. You're welcome. Um, British Christmas music is uh, superior to almost all genres, it has to be said. Most of it is ripping off other people's Christmas music. No, I think it's just, it's either, to quote a Simpsons meme, it's either something that just doesn't happen anymore or it's the kids who are wrong and I'm not out of touch. It used to be pretty much in earnest. Like people made Christmas songs because they want to make Christmas songs. And and yeah, they were cheesy, but um, that's the point. And then it became complicated and about a race and then it became political and then it became, I don't know. I just, uh, I'm not aware of anyone actually pushing anything big this year which is a shame we can't have nice things anymore well it's normally like the the thing about the streaming side of it is it just tends to be someone up against mariah carey every year now. it's not actually <laughs> yeah, like, it's the problem. like they it used to be on physical sales so people weren't going out and rebuying mariah carey oh. every time and now right. because you add in streaming and you add in digital and everything the, the model of how they calculate it has changed. So it, it allows for more throwbacks, but those throwbacks have a tendency towards the middle and the mean, uh, which is Mariah Carey, which is not a bad song. I have a follow-up question that has nothing to do with Christmas or Star Wars, and then I swear I'll stop. Okay. okay. I have one more question about holidays for lots of You mean Go you ahead. started with two questions and you now have a third one? That seems out yeah, of character. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's, it's our way, you and I. I... I think it's just your way. It is your way. <laughs> and I was just wondering, in with your refusal to accept the, the wonder that is a thruple, why you're inherently so drawn to that in your questions. So I want to ask you about Eurovision. 
No, no, no. You, I thought it was really interesting when you made that description of the holiday single or the holiday number one over there. It reminded me of Eurovision. And of course, like, you know, last year was the first year we could legally watch it. And so we, we kind of reveled in it last year. And I thought it was really interesting. Different countries' approaches, you know, hiring a ringer to come in, like, like Flo Rida. Or, or like, you know, Hoover Phonic, which is an established act, you know, competing versus all these other people. But what I really started to notice last year and then totally noticed this year, right? Because of Brexit, nobody voted for England last year. The UK, and then this yeah, year, sure. it was like, well, I don't even know who won because everybody was, was like, Ukraine. why bother doing this? Ukraine just going to give it to Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so the UK won the jury vote which is weird because it probably wasn't that good a song. It was fine. By by our standards, it was fine. And then Ukraine smashed everyone in the popular vote, which everyone knew was going to happen. But it's a weird mix of random um, local politics and occasionally a music contest. Sometimes that breaks out. Has it always been that way or is it yeah. gone more toward the political? No, uh, well... The first British success that I can remember, so when I was aware of Eurovision, was in 97. And that was 100% off the back of Tony Blair's victory uh, in, the polit- in politics and his reach out to Europe. So he, Britain was then seen as a bit cooler, as a bit more Euro-friendly, and, and they did pretty well off that. It's not been great for the last 10 years or so. <laughs> 15 years or so i think we've we've maybe we've worn everyone down with brexit i'm certainly worn down by brexit um and so the, <laughs> uh, but there was also like britain in europe at least has been seen as probably on the forefront of aid to ukraine in terms of vocal standing up for ukraine whether they actually do that effectively in the background or not. But um, one of the very few things that Boris Johnson was very loud about this year, apart from his own corruption, was about standing up for for Ukraine. So perhaps there was a knock-on effect from that. To bring us back to the holidays, (laughs) I know that you have a very special tradition that you like to observe. Would you explain to us what Moroxing Day is? You cook Moroccan food on Boxing Day. I mean, it sounds like a great tradition to me. It's right there in the title. Yeah. <laughs> I got asked to cook Boxing Day one year. I think it was about four or five years ago. And I was so fed up with the fact that we have a big, heavy sort of turkey-based meal for Christmas Day. And then normally it's like gammon or something the next day as well. And I was like, I just don't want to have two roasts two days in a row. So I was like, I love Moroccan food, so... So I take the opportunity to spend a day, I mean, there's often some roast lamb, I'll be honest, but um, <laughs> but making fresh baba ganoush and fresh hummus and trying to trying to add in or, or change out one of the uh, dishes each year, making way too much tagine, leaving it with my parents to eat for three months or so. so <laughs> <laughs> uh, couscous is impossible to measure, um, so there's always too much of that as well. It's at, that is absolutely right. We are 13 minutes in. We need to start talking about stuff. Is this fine? Uh, is it? So, like, as usual, Lazi tries to lead us astray. And I, yeah, why did you bring like... up Eurovision? <laughs> what was up with that? 
It doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. Segment two, as those of you who have been listening, is our initial impressions. Lazi, is Star Wars good? Uh huh. <laughs> I do have several follow up questions for you. Uh, what version of this film did you watch for the episode? Because we haven't really had to deal that much with this for the previous films that we've talked about, which is we've talked a little bit about like some of the differences between theater and streaming, but they're very negligible. This is not um, because you do have the fact that Lucas re-released these in 97 and it's very difficult to find other versions that were prior to that. Uh, What version did you watch? Which version did you watch originally? And which version do you prefer? So I watched the Disney Plus version because I have Disney Plus. I mean, got to go with accessibility. And I've been basically trying to watch through the whole series from uh, sort of in preparation and just for the hell of it. So uh, I've watched all the way through the prequels, plus Solo, plus Rogue One, plus this um, Empire as well. And then I'll try to get through the rest of them before (laughs) I'm next on. But my first watch of Star Wars is a VHS tape off of ITV, including all the 80s ad breaks that came with it. So I have uh, strong memories of Weetabix adverts, uh, which had sort of jazzy uh, neon 80s cartoon cats in them. And I can tell you exactly when the ad breaks come as well, because it's so <laughs> embedded in my in my memory. So the three things, and I, I put this in the notes, but the three things that I remember most from my early childhood are a giant purple cushion, the Catholic Church, and Star Wars. So I used to watch Star Wars obsessively. Um, I used to come home after school when I was five and watch Star Wars. I was born in 1980, so I didn't see um, any of the, the first three when they came out in cinema. But I saw all of them on uh, on tape copies off of uh, off TV. And those were, were my original versions. So my memory is very much of the big black squares around all the TIE fighters uh, as they move around the screen. And the, before we got to the to then the big re-releases, so I then remember the special editions and I went to see all of those in cinema. And then that set up for um, some bit of a roller coaster ride of uh, cinema versions of Star Wars things. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I would definitely say that Star Wars as a series is a roller coaster ride in some ways, in terms of quality, in terms of investment, in terms of emotional investment. So I, I completely understand that. Sam. We did not watch the <laughs> re-released version, which is on Disney+. Plus. Do you want to explain I, what version of this film we watched and why you prefer it? I will, but first, before I do that, here's what I want to say. Here is what is different from Lazi's recounting from his previous answer. No purple cushion. I sat on the floor. We are, you know... Episcopal, not Catholic, although I hadn't been confirmed yet. So I was still Catholic, although Catholics still say I'm Catholic. So whatever. So that's kind of the same, but it's a little different. Same great taste, less filling. Let's see. (laughs) Mine was recorded off of HBO, which did not have commercials. And of course, because I was born the year before Lazi, I also did not see the original films uh, when they were released. I did as Lazi see them in 1997, although, of course, we do not call it the cinema. 
we call it the theater. Other than that, pretty much same story. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's funny how similar, like it's almost exactly the same. Yeah. It's it's I grew up watching these just as you said, obsessively, action figures. Yep. Just I mean, all of it, right? My grandfather scoured Hampshire toy shops for uh, a Millennium Falcon for a Christmas present mm. for me once, and I uh, I still get told stories about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. We did not watch the version on Disney+. Plus. I have never seen the version on Disney+. Plus. Uh, we'll be talking about this in Max Rebo's retcon corner lately. <laughs> but I have not watched these special editions since 97. I have nothing nice to say about them. You know, and one of the interesting things is he, up until he sold to Disney, he kept changing them, which just, man, I don't know. How much money could you make if you sold a box set that had every single change tracked? Like, that is something I would deeply be interested in. Much as I dislike the special editions, if I could watch OG version, 1997 version, and then however many versions that got created, I would pay money for that because it's an interesting experiment and process rather than a, no, you can't have this. I'm sure there is a GitHub somewhere with that. Like, it feels like it must. Yeah, it just it just feels, and of course, because the 20th century, well, actually, Disney owns 20th Century Fox. There's no issue anymore. They could do that whenever they wanted. Disney, free idea. Hey, Iger, you need money? This is how you do it. Anyway, so for this episode, we have watched Harmy's despecialized version of Star Wars. We'll be doing the same with Empire and Return of the Jedi. These are created over on your side of the ocean, Lazi, by a person who basically self-taught himself video editing software and cobbled together the best versions VHS, Laserdisc, I think there's one recorded off TV in there somewhere. The newer DVD versions, you know, parts that Lucas hadn't interfered with. And and just cobbled together the best version of the original films. I do want to say really quickly, disclaimer, as Harmy and the Star Wars community have pointed out, anybody who watches, not owns, anybody who watches, as we did, the despecialized versions has many times over purchased the original trilogy in its form. I do, in fact, own the original trilogy. They are disc two on uh, the original DVD releases. They are non-anamorphic transfers. So, disclaimer. Don't cut that, Tessa. <laughs> I will not cut the disclaimer. So on the on the despecialized version, then do you do you still have the black yeah. boxes around the Tie Fighters and everything? Uh, n- do I have that? Is that what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's it. Okay, so I think like I could have a. a I mean, I don't know whether you want to talk about a retcon or or just now. My thoughts on the special edition. Let's save that for the retcon. Yeah, corner. I just wanted to establish here at the beginning which versions we had all watched because this Tessa is one hopes, where you, it can kind of change depending on the version. Tessa had hopes we could answer the question in a couple minutes. Uh, so yeah, that sure. Was, That's what I thought. You know. I mean, I, I answered the first question in half a second. I don't know <laughs> That's fair. I just wanted to point out very quickly. I've already talked about a little bit about my experience growing up with Star Wars. 
But I did while I was watching this, because sometimes I think Sam thinks that like I'm part of the younger generation and I don't remember what VHS was or something you, like that. You literally are. I but. am what is called... I'm not an elder millennial, but I'm very close to being an elder millennial. And so I'm at this weird part where I remember a lot of things from like the early 90s, but then I remember it all changing when I was very young too. And so my experience with this film specifically is that we would get the VHS tape from Blockbuster and we would watch it on our little square television. And I, as I was watching this this time, I was like, do you remember... When you were watching it on the square television, because it wasn't widescreen, that you had to like wait for the crawl to get like all the way out so you could read the full line of text. And you could barely read it when it was finally fully available because it was so far down on the crawl. I just, that was just a very visceral memory from my childhood. If you can read this, you don't need glasses. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, Lazi, initial impressions you think this film is good. Why is it good? Broad strokes. So this is arguably the best of all of the series just because the world building is so phenomenal in it. Like you land fully formed in the middle of a of a space battle. You start getting references here, there and everywhere to the spice mines of Kessel that are frankly irrelevant to anything really apart from when Solo tries to make it relevant. You get all of this all of this world building without needing to explain what any of it is you just you're just there you you learn it you learn it along there isn't that much exposition and you've still got you know frankly groundbreaking changes to to visuals you've got just the best john williams score to that that pushes it on you've got fantastic character intros in all of these cases and for all of the all of the classic lines about about the dubiousness of the dialogue the characters are good in this three set of films maybe not so much in some of the earlier three set of films and they make it work and the performances are very good as well it all the way you've got fantastic villains not just vader but but peter cushing who kind of gets a little bit overlooked is really really good as tarkin in this and you you sense the threat of vader but you also sense the fact that he's actually subservient to this to this other guy and, and you wonder how that works out there is a bit of a classic hero's journey obviously with your initial refusal of the call from from luke and then your your transition through it, through it you have iconic characters that last the you know last forever really since then you've got your lightsabers which if you don't want to go whoosh and swing a lightsaber around i just don't i don't don't know i don't know how to talk to you about that um <laughs> it's a fantastic spectacle it's a really satisfying ending there's a little bit of almost shakespearean although actually kurosawa in comic relief in terms of of your two droids there to lighten lighten the mood slightly so it's not just completely dour and and focused the whole time yeah it's just a great 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 film and all the spaceships are fucking cool (laughs) i love that and all the spaceships are fucking cool sam is this movie good yes Care to elaborate on your initial impression? <laughs> I'm not sure I know how. I mean, that's um, fine. We- no, I mean, the the funny thing about this is that 
I don't know how to tell you to like this movie if you don't already. And I mean, that's that's part of the problem, right? It's like when you'd meet people, and you would from time to time, people who hadn't seen the Star Wars. Like, I don't I don't know what to tell you. And and people occasionally, I don't like Star Wars. I they're an android, put them down, right? That's the real, <laughs> blade. but it, but you know, it was. <laughs> I actually, it's it's funny because I've had this, and I and and by the way, when I say this, we can all laugh and acknowledge that Star Wars is the one that makes most sense in this context. But I've also felt the same way, and and this is a product of growing up in the '80s where we weren't that far removed. There wasn't so much that had happened between now and then. But it's kind of the same as when people said they don't like the Beatles. But what? I don't understand. No, not given. I knew a lot. I know a lot more about music, and there's been a lot more music since then. But I mean, I didn't get it. I don't understand. How do you not like these two things? Why do you not like? I, I, I mean, it's not why do you hate joy? Although, <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. I mean, it's just so fundamental to life. I mean, so I don't know. Uh, you guys had HBO and a bunch of other channels. Um, we had four TV channels uh, growing up here. So it's not just that Star Wars is fantastic. It's that it also was kind of the only thing at the time, the only thing that took sci-fi and really made a huge breakthrough success of it not to say that you didn't have your 2001s not to say that you know predating that you didn't have your metropolises or your brazils or your whatever else's um, and it's not to say that you didn't have blade runners and whatever else after us but nothing made the impact that star wars did nothing but it was also not fighting as much in such a crowded marketplace if you released it from scratch now it's got an awful lot of other things to compete with. It's got an awful lot of other things to break through against. Now, really, all of those things owe a bit of a debt, if you know some more obviously than others, to what Star Wars did for movies in the late 70s and the early 80s and what it changed about how science fiction or space opera or fantasy or however you want to frame it um, was seen as what it could become as a successful tentpole of an entire industry you know it's it's interesting the science fiction thing i can tell you as a kid i didn't care for science fiction i this was the you know it's funny that had nothing to do with it for me so it, it's when you hear when you said that i was like oh yeah that's right i guess this would be like but that explains why i, I don't i'd never watched star trek before science fiction doesn't really mean much to me as a kid i mean there are a couple of other exceptions you can Flight of the Navigator or even Short Circuit, you could call sci-fi, but that's a real stretch. You know, I'd be watching, you know, I would more likely to be watching Bakshi's Tolkien cartoons than I would be watching any other sci-fi. You know, I'd watch Willow. I'd watch Labyrinth. I'd, you know, music videos and compilations. Even things that we would probably call romantic comedies now. Like, I... It's it's interesting thinking about Star Wars as science fiction because I don't care about it for that reason. <laughs> you know, it just pushes other buttons. You know, the hero's journey, the 
the romance later on in the other movies between Han and Leia, you know, the arc of Darth Vader. I have a couple of things to say. One is that you're absolutely right about the impact at the time. I mean, we were watching the ILM documentary that we want to talk about later. And just the idea of people like watching it and then getting right back in line to watch it again. Like Mm. this was a movie that was successful on a scale that was like, frankly, unparalleled. Like the fact that people this had such popular appeal while clearly being a groundbreaking like piece of cinema. And those two things don't necessarily go together all the time. And, you know, that I think works in Star Wars favor. The other thing is, is, and Ryan pointed this out when we talked about Revenge of the Sith, visual narrative, right? Like you could turn the sound off of this and still basically get the idea of what was going on in this. Like the idea that like every single one of these things works and the world building works even without the dialogue, although the dialogue's great. I would, I would just, just on that. Yes, if you turn off the dialogue, if you turn off the soundtrack. Oh, no, 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 not the music. The soundtrack is what makes the thing. Yeah, so we can definitely talk about that as well. Yeah, well, no, I I also think this movie is great. It clearly is the first one that came out chronologically, and we are calling it Star Wars, not Episode Four: Star Wars A New Hope, which is what it's called now, I guess. Um, I think that's even on the crawl now in the special editions. I yeah want to say Lazi back me up on this do you remember if the ITV tape you had had episode 4 a new hope no it I didn't I think that it are didn't. you sure I think it didn't I don't think it came out with that I, okay I know by the time I had the home video on VHS it did by then for certain because I would have never written to George as I did if I hadn't seen the episode 4 thing you know, so I had I had seen it enough times to really wonder why it was episode four. And then when I got the novelization after that, that's when I saw the Journal of the Wills thing and the wheels started turning and I had to go to the source, which I did. So there were definitely video VHS releases in the early nineties and they definitely had it on there. But I don't know. Uh, I my I can't I can't with all conscience say greater than fifty percent. That uh, how that dare you like... not remember your entire childhood yeah. with photographic detail? So I have to say that as a child, one of my first memories of Star Wars is being scared to death of the Jawas. Nothing else scared me in that movie, but the Jawas did. And I have no idea why. I think it was the glowing eyes that frankly freaked me out. That's how young I was when I watched this the first time. I was also very scared of the Borg growing up. So like, you know, there was all those types of things going on in my brain. I was raised on both Star Wars and Star Trek. So that works for me. Let's move on to segment three, though. (laughs) But really, is it good? Where we deep dive into the film itself and... Lassie has actually written most of our talking points for today, which I, uh, we looked at it and I looked at it and I was just like, this is perfect. Let's talk about it. Your first talking point that you have on here is dirty space, which by which I assume you're talking about the fact that Lucas's world that he's built is very grimy, which is not something that science fiction had really explored a lot in its world building. Usually science fiction at the time was very shiny. It was very futuristic. It was very like technically progressive. Whereas this particular world the spaceships are like i think lucas even said this they look like cars that have been in someone's garage that have been fixed up many times and you know are kind of dirty and kind of sketchy is that what you mean by dirty space 
the boldness it takes to set up the Millennium Falcon as the the fastest ship in the sector to set up Han Solo <laughs> and as this roguish um, pilot to build you up towards going to the to the docking bay ninety four to see it to have them turn around the corner as the music swells and for Luke to go what a piece of junk I mean it's really good and it it's 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 that it's the cantina it's the desert you've still got shininess in in like the early um in the Corellian Corvette you've got shininess inside the Death Star and inside the the Star Destroyer although the Star Destroyer itself is a bit blocky it's not sleek it's not smooth there's no aerodynamics because you don't need aerodynamics when you're in space but uh, I mean that kind of goes back to my point of all the spaceships are so fucking cool because they all are iconic in ways that I don't think a single other science fiction show has ever come close to it I think maybe Babylon 5 gets a little bit close to it at times, but but no, I don't think anyone else... I definitely don't think Star Trek gets gets anywhere oh, near it. Oh, no. Maybe the Borg cube? That's kind of iconic, but no, not a, the same. That's just a six-sided dice. Yeah. <laughs> My first car was a hunk of junk that could outspeed anybody. Like I distinctly remember... There's this one time where this, you know, sports car convertible, I don't remember what kind it was, pulled up next to me at the light and really kind of made like, you know, the the asshole thing where they read the engine and I just left them behind. I had turbo and they didn't. Your Han Solo, is that what you're telling? Yes. Did did Um, they then crash and then break their arm and then they couldn't play guitar anymore and then they had to have their kids come back from the future? Wait, are you Martin McFly or are you Biff Tannen? Am I Flea from the California Funk Rock (laughs) band Red Hot Chili Peppers? Um, Oh my God. But yeah, like I think, uh, and you know, we've seen a couple of different documentaries about Lucas during this project that we're doing. This this project where we're immersing ourselves in Star Wars for about 14 days. (laughs) Listeners, they look very tired. Lucas was obsessed with cars. I mean, I don't think that that should be a surprise to anyone. And there's a lot of stories about how when he was a kid, he would go cruising, which is not something that I think that's something that's it was part of white culture in the 50s. It means something different now um, in Latinx culture. But he was very interested in cars. And I think that that really impacts the way that he designs his spaceships because he is very interested in like the rebels having those like cobbled together, you know, made out of different scrap parts types of things. Whereas the the Empire, the Imperial ships look like they've just come off a factory line, right? Which we find out in Andor, they have. But, you know, it's just this very interesting experience. And it we watched American Graffiti oh, I want to say a month or so ago is when we watched it. And it was the first time that I had ever seen it. And I can definitely say that even though, like, if you watch those two together, American Graffiti and Star Wars, they're completely different movies about two completely different things. But you can, in some senses, see that sensibility of, like, cars and, like, how are cars important? So if you translate that over to science fiction, to a space opera... You know, how what does what does your spaceship say about you? You know, what is what does it say about your position in life or uh, what you're interested in? What does it say about your personality? You know, that that kind of thing. And so I do think it's really interesting 
because like you said, all of these things are very iconic. Um, but to even think about like, why did they design them that way? And like, why did, you know, this sort of importance that he puts on modes of transport in this universe? Yeah, I agree. And I think if you look at the way Han talks about the Millennium Falcon or the relationship that him and Lando have through the Millennium Falcon in Empire, at least, you can see that similarity with with sort of a car that's changed ownership or, you know, they they call the, the he calls it baby. You know, it's it, there is that. Um, <laughs> she is his baby. She is. But I haven't seen American Graffiti in probably a decade so uh, but i have this strong sense of like diner scenes and going down the sort of the main strip and i can i, can I mean totally so much of that, that film happens in cars like so much of it is people like yelling at each other between cars or talking in cars or taking borrowing each other's cars there's a race scene in it so yeah very very much lucas's lucas's idiom what is your favorite spaceship in star wars this film in this film, yes, I think it still has to be the X-Wing. I think the X-Wing is just, as much as I love the Falcon, as much as I love Star Destroyers, I think the X-Wing is just so cool. The fact that it, the fact that it opens up and closes again, the fact that, you know, it's got this sort of very pointy nose and, and this, it, it's got a sort of a, a droid set on the outside waiting to get shot in the head um, <laughs> there's the fact that it's so maneuverable that it you know it delivers the coup de gras you know it is um, I think the X-Wing is the most iconic in a, in a movie of very iconic uh, spaceships. I'll take the Falcon The Falcon? Yeah. yeah I mean I think it's X-Wing or Falcon I think are just two very good answers i mean my actual overall favorite one is the b-wing but that's because i'm a dork fair i will say that as a kid i thought it was very funny that that vader got a different looking tie fighter and as a child i thought that that meant that it, it was meant to show that he was more important than than the other two tie fighters which it is but like it's just very funny that that was my kid logic like oh of course they'd give him a different tie fighter because he's important just on the world building side, and again, not to get into Empire and, and everything, but the fact that you do start getting all these different types of of, uh, of fighters, whether it's the TIE Interceptors or the Bombers, whether it's the, the A-Wings or the Y-Wings or the B-Wings, and they they never talk about them in the, sh- in the film. There's no one saying, oh, you've got an X-Wing or you've got a Y-Wing, and what's the difference between them? In the film, they're just there. And no one needs to talk about them. No one needs to do an exposition dump about what these all these things different mean and what their different things are. We've all got enough uh, extraordinarily dorky manuals and books, and I certainly purchased enough of those myself uh, to tell me all those differences. And I played the X-Wing games and the TIE Fighter games to, to learn more about them. But no one's speaking artificially about these ships. They just are. And I think that is the strength of Lucas in a lot of ways, the way he's able to show and not tell. And unfortunately, when he does tell, the dialogue (laughs) isn't always great. But the idea that, and this brings up something I brought up in the very first episode of this series, because a lot of these ships feel very old, too. So there is this sense that we're just holding on to things as long as they will possibly stay together, right? Some of the stuff, like, it's not like an iPhone where you're getting the new one, like, every couple of years. Like, these people are, like... 
they're the, so, uh, the the Millennium Falcon is like holding together with a prayer sometimes, right? And so like there is this uh, there's that sense in these films. Let's talk about John Williams then. We talked a little bit about John Williams before when we talked about the prequels. John Williams to me in Star Wars this film specifically is the person who provides the melodrama, the pacing, what t- it tells you what you're supposed to feel at certain times. Sam, what do you think about John Williams' score specifically in Star Wars? I had it on cassette tape. You had it on cassette tape? I did. I mean, to be more accurate, my mom, I guess. One of them bought it. Probably her. Had it on cassette tape and I have it's pro I think I actually still have it. I think that's one of the ones I still have. It was a it was a double cassette tape. <laughs> Those were very cool. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, which doesn't mean it was two cassette tapes. It means it was like a long play cassette tape. Yeah, I mean, so that's I've always associated the score as its own thing since I can remember. And it is. Right? Like yeah. you don't this would I, I you could I think you could stack this up against a lot of the quote unquote classical masters and it would be fine just by itself. And and so I mean the fact that it was written to score a film and you know John Williams had to use his imagination to try and picture what Lucas was telling him cuz it wasn't ready yet right cuz we know from watching uh, some of these documentaries that some of the finished product of the film is inspired by Williams' soundtrack instead of the way it usually is, which is the other way around. So you can almost give John Williams a writing credit on this film, and I don't think it would be unearned. It's it's tough to remember a time without that Fox fanfare going into a flash up of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then just the absolute pound of the trumpet hitting in as, as the Star Wars logo goes, goes into the screen. It is, it always seems to always catch me out and always surprise me that the most famous part of Star Wars music he wrote isn't actually in this, (laughs) that the Imperial March doesn't show up, but it's, you know, it persists everywhere. Every, every, Every uh, orchestra will have played this at some point to make money, frankly, if nothing, if nothing else, because it draws a crowd. You will always, if you always get a music from the movies played by an orchestra, you will get some Star Wars in there. And the sort of main themes, fantastic. The, the theme for Luke does him an awful lot of favours in the introduction because he, you know, he's particularly early on is quite whiny. But when you're introduced to him, you just hear like Baru calling his name and he turns to go back to her. And then the theme for him kicks in uh, as he's walking over the desert. And in and it just does wonders for introducing you to this character that you are suddenly feel warmly about because of how the music swells around him. The scene where he's looking up at the twin sons, too, and that music swells yeah. is always... Yeah. I mean, it's an iconic scene, but it's because of that music, specifically. Well, what George Lucas wanted for this music, and I believe what he initially told John Williams, was that he wanted it to be like an old Hollywood score. 
um, because he didn't want to use like contemporary music. And I believe what what when he tried to describe this to John Williams from the documentary, John Williams's response was basically like, oh, I know what you want. And then wrote this score. Basically, <laughs> there is a lot of melodrama in this score. And it yeah. does remind me of something from like Howard Hawks movie or an Errol Flynn movie or Flash Gordon which I know you have Flash Gordon written here in the notes as well. We've talked a little bit before about Lucas's influence from the serials, both radio and television serials. How do you see that playing out in this initial film? I mean, The Crawl is the most obvious immediate version of it. I think it's more contained. It does tell it. It's not, it's not fully serialized. It tells its own story. And frankly, you could just have this film and no other Star Wars and it would still be great and it would still tell a story from from start to end effectively for me. So I think it's more in a bit of the look and feel and 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 certainly that sort of intro crawl to set you set you on your way. I haven't seen that much. I haven't seen any of the old Flash Gordon serials. Um I've seen the um I was going to say the Queen film <laughs> the film as soundtracked by Queen. <laughs> Also but, a great soundtrack. Um, it was a, a cracking soundtrack and some some iconic performances, but very scenery chewing, very over the top, very cardboard. Nowhere near, I think, as uh, rich a world as you get in in uh, in Star Wars. We we throw around the term space opera. Well, Star Wars is a space opera. Well, what's a space opera? You know, Star Wars. <laughs> right. It's a it's a very reflexive definition which by the way there's certainly nothing wrong with flash gordon is certainly described as a space opera which is basically that that kind of melodrama in space and what i said a minute ago about john williams and how that score could stand up i think to other symphonies but it could to operas too it's it's got that that you know melodrama appeal to it by the way, I just it's really funny looking at the Wikipedia of list of space operas. I'm like, well, you clearly don't know what it is either, friend. <laughs> um, I, it's interesting, though, seeing Dune as a space opera, which I guess, yeah, given what I know about that, I would I would accept that. We were just talking the other day about how Dune might ought to have been a trilogy, how it might actually have enough to justify it. But, you know, this, this list I'm looking at has Barbarella as a space opera. And I'm like, I don't know about that. I was thinking about Barbarella while we were watching this movie, actually. And I was like, I wonder if Lucas has seen Barbarella. And I'm... He has definitely like seen he, Barbarella. He's definitely seen Barbarella. Because right. there are some visuals. There's some visual similarities between the I, two. I don't think... I'm, I'm looking at... It, Star Trek is not a space opera. Alien no. is not a space opera. Blade Runner, also not a space uh, opera. I think it's seen as out of style too. It's right. not the vogue of, you know, it's very, anytime you start to bring up Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers, you are like a step away from Edgar Rice Burroughs and, you know, all the pulp serials of the earlier part of the 20th century. And those are not cool. And, you know, and, and that's something to think about about this trilogy and not so much comparing it to the prequels, but I think this is maybe the best way to compare it to the sequel trilogy. J.J. Abrams tries to make Star Wars cool 
huge mistake. Big, huge, giant mistake. He tries to make Star Trek cool, by the way, and thanks to the Beastie Boys, largely succeeds, I think. (laughs) But trying to make Star Wars cool was a giant mistake because the the space opera is not cool. It's pulpy. Well, you know, Venu tries to make Dune cool and knows that Shalimar and Zendaya will get you there. (laughs) Right? So, I mean, like, in this case, okay, sure, it's cool now, but... But that's the thing, right? This is definitely a moment in time that appeals to George Lucas's generation and nowhere after that. You know, we got addicted to it as kids because it had something, you know, there, as I said, you know, but... Well, this goes back to your thesis that George Lucas makes movies for 50s kids. Right. Like, that he is specifically making a movie for the kid that he was. Yes. Yeah, I mean that that completely makes sense to me. I as mentioned before, I grew up on like Errol Flynn and a lot of those like swashbuckling action films. I didn't necessarily grow up on Flash Gordon. I kind of wish that I did because that seems like something I really would have been into as a child. I can see a lot of that DNA in Star Wars. You know, you can see it specifically this film. I don't think you see it as much in the other two. You can see it DNA of it in the other two, but this film specifically really feels like that because you get some of those like tropes of, you know, them swinging across the the gap, which is like mm. Errol Flynn would have done that stunt in a heartbeat. Yep. You know, it has done that stunt, you know, many, many times. And so, you know, somebody rescuing the princess and like, you know, all of those types of things. Kiss the girl and swing, ac- swing across the parapet. Like it's, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And even like lightsabers, like the idea of like fighting with a sword is very, like it's from those like pirate you know, war types of films, those types of, because he, he would have these action scenes that were literally just two people like sword fighting for like, you know, six or seven minutes, you know? And so there's a lot of, of that in this as well. The other thing is just, and I only noticed this this time watching it, Luke's dialogue, which we should definitely talk about Lucas and the fact that he his dialogue was punched up by other writers because he's not a good dialogue writer. But Luke's dialogue in this is very comic booky. It's very much like, oh boy, you know, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna get it now. And you know, like it's it's very much that sort of like gee whiz, you know, type of type of dialogue. And I think it works because of the way that the rest of the characters talk and because of who Luke is as a character at the beginning of his arc, basically, in, in this in this trilogy, because he's gonna be a very different character by the end of this trilogy. But it does remind me of those like old serial, like Peter Parker, you know, type of type of comics. Yeah. He has a lot of Peter Parker about him. I think that's a really good shout. And I agree. I think like space opera is kind of viewed as a a pejorative, but it's equally an extremely nebulous term. Like in that it is, it's, you know, it's pornography. We know it when we see it, when, and we and we and we and we use it when we want to put someone down, really, rather than to build them up. No one ever, no one's saying it's a space opera as a as a resounding. You should see this space opera, even if unless it's Star Wars, you. unless it's yeah. Star Wars, and you're trying to convince someone who doesn't like science fiction to watch it. I think, <laughs> I think that might be another reason why people call it a space opera because they don't want to call it science fiction because at the time, science fiction wasn't yeah. seen as real art. I have to say, though, I thought about this earlier before I move on to the next thing, and I didn't say it then. 
people keep talking. Uh, everyone on this uh, series so far has talked about, well, everyone's seen Star Wars. I assure you, as a teacher of freshmen who are mostly 18 at this point, there are lots of people who haven't seen Star Wars because... They were born post the year 2000. Um, there's lots of them who don't know the twist in Star Wars, which surprised the hell out of me when a student came in and told me that she had just watched them for the first time and had no idea like what these films were about. And so turns is, out we're kind of old. Time, is yeah. this the time <laughs> I bring up the movie Pitch Perfect in Star Wars reference? Oh, you have a Pitch so, Perfect? So in Pitch Perfect, Anna Kendrick's character has not seen Star Wars and her, um, I can't remember her love interest name at the time, but he shows it to her and she's like unimpressed and unsurprised by the twist. And she's like, his name was Dark Father What in Dutch or something. Like, what do you want me to say? Um, and I don't think that's actually right. I don't think that is actually Dutch for father, but that that's the sort of reference. And I believe it. I 100% believe it. Like, again, when we were young, when we were young, it was... <laughs> you know, it, what did you it, used to say back then? When, um, your, when your heart was an open book? <laughs> <laughs> you know you did. Come on. Uh, anyway, whilst Darth Vader doesn't look a thing like Jesus... Uh, even if he's written to be, um, he he does. Um, he's dark Jesus. He's gritty he's Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> now I just think of uh, Jesus as a big orange hockey monster. So, <laughs> I mean, if you want Jesus or gritty in your corner, who are you going to pick? Uh, I mean, one's a magician, you know, and raconteur. I mean, he's got a lot of stories to tell, and he can uh, he can do some cool tricks. And the other has big googly eyes, so what do you want? Yeah, the big googly eyes. <laughs> but, but everyone hey, likes him. Is they the are both, both a hit with the ladies. That's true. There's really three influences. We've talked about the serials. The other one is, of course, Kurosawa and the Hidden Fortress, which I have not seen. I have actually seen a lot of Kurosawa, but not this one. But you rewatched it or watched it for the first time for this, Lazi? Yes, I watched it for the first time over the weekend, um, split into a couple of viewings. So that Sounds like a Kurosawa is, film. <laughs> yeah. Then I've never seen any Kurosawa before. So I was just like, well, you know, whatever. I can pay three quid on Amazon to get it. So why, why not watch it? As God intended, I watched the end of it on my phone. Uh, but <laughs> so David there are definitely... Lynch wept. David Lynch uh, has wept enough. And I've wept enough seeing um, his version of June. That's a lie. I like his version of June. But um, who doesn't want to see a mostly naked sting? Uh, honestly. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. The resident lesbian doesn't. But uh, anyway, <laughs> there there are two farmer characters who are you kind of follow through the hidden fortress, and they are doofuses, and there's something a little bit Shakespearean about them. To me, there's a little bit of dog's body, Dogsbury and like all of those sort of Shakespearean fool characters. They're wandering around the desert. They are such a clear inspiration for R2 and 3PO. Uh, it's it's you know it's it's really quite obvious. There's um there is a a character who is very much like Leia. She's a princess. She's um, very headstrong. Very you know 
very vocal or she has to play as a mute because they would immediately know something was wrong with her if she talked because she can't uh, she when she talks she can't keep her uh, her opinions to herself and there's you know there's bits of sigils in there that look quite a bit like the imperial uh, sigil in star wars there is a spear jewel that looks an awful lot like the um the the vader kenobi lightsaber jewel which let's be clear that is the worst lightsaber fight in the whole of the, of yeah the, absolutely of the series. it's not great it's very static it's it's very very framed um but yeah it's um it's fine like it's 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 fun to watch and go okay i can see all these parallels there is a um there is a scene where the princess in it is sort of lying down that looks exactly like the scene when luke goes into the her into Leia's cell so she's lying in exactly the same way and there's, and there's some some clear references but i'd see them more as like homages and inspirations and rather than like like anything negative i think i think you know it, it's a fine film it's sort of fun there's some good stuff in it, 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 it you can see the inspiration not much more there's a bit of music, bit of musical cues actually. So there was one oh, thing that's I, I cool. meant to say. There are some musical stings and cues in it that I, I, I was like, okay, well, Williams definitely listened. George Lucas definitely made Williams <laughs> watch this film <laughs> and listen to the soundtrack, and he's definitely used some a few, not the not the overall scope uh, and opera of of Williams's score, but certainly some of the transitional cues or the. The plinky plinky things, I think. Uh, I, I like that. The plinky plinky things. That's a that's a technical term, I think. You. That's why you get me here, right? Like technical yeah. terms. for the technical discussions. I. It's funny you mentioned Shakespearean because I just yesterday mentioned one of the Kurosawa's that I love, which is Ron, his adaptation of King Lear, which I think actually has some parallels to Rogue One. You'll have to listen to that episode, but it is interesting that you point out like he's got like the Shakespearean type. Type characters. Sam, have you seen The Hidden Fortress? I have not. Okay. All right. Well, then let's move <laughs> on. And this will help get us into the characters of this film to what I think is the third, largely acknowledged to be the third main influence on Lucas. Lucas himself has said that this was a big influence, which is, of course, Joseph Campbell's Hero with the Thousand Faces, which is his theory of the hero's journey, which is something that is used quite a lot in screenwriting. It's used quite a lot in just storytelling um, in general. Blasi, do you know about the hero of the thousand faces? I do, but I feel like I'm now <laughs> very much on, uh, on dodgy ground. So I, I know I'll, I'll be brutally honest. I know about the hero's journey, probably from Dan Harmon and community more than I know it from too much <laughs> yes. more than anything else. So what I know about it is, is, is a trope, right? I know about certain key aspects like the refusal of the call, certain thing, key things about like going home again towards the end, about sacrifice, about fall and, and rise. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't, uh, and the, the, the sort of effective theory is that you know, all of these heroic stories fundamentally follow very similar patterns. The details of it, I do not. So I used to teach this in Worldlet. Let me see if I can remember every oh, cool. single step. So <laughs> you definitely should be the one who explains it. Then. So it's a call to adventure, uh, like you say, and usually there's some sort of 
you know, refusal to go, but then something help it happens that makes them go. So it's the threshold, which is the beginning of the transformation. You have challenges and temptations, and that's, you know, kind of the middle act usually of the story where, you know, they go on various adventures while they're journeying. And then you have the abyss, which is uh, death and rebirth, which is generally like the climax of the film. You have transformation, like they go through that climax and it transforms them. You have atonement, um, and then you have the return. So they always have to go back home, but they're always changed in some way, or their home is changed in some way. And so it's never like they don't return to status quo. So it's it's that's the hero's journey, basically in a nutshell, which you can definitely see in Lucas. The other thing that Campbell gives us, um, well, it's really Jung who gives us this by way of Campbell. Um, is this idea that there are specific character tropes that most characters fall into. So you have the mentor, so you're Obi-Wan Kenobi. You have the hero, Luke Skywalker. You have the rogue, Han Solo. Um, You have the princess. Um, You have a shapeshifter. You know, you have a trickster, right? Um, You have the villain, so Darth Vader in this case, or, or Tarkin. And so you have these various tropes that exist in all stories, right? You can kind of like lay them up against each other and see some of the same attributes in these stock characters. So Lucas is obviously very interested in this. And in fact, Star Wars, this film is often used to teach the hero's journey and to teach stock characters to English students, to film students, etc. I think it lines up pretty well. Um, and you can not only see this in just what happens in the film, but also in like the visual storytelling. So like Leia wears white the entire film, Um, You know, Luke wears white the entire film. Han has a white shirt, but a black vest, which shows that he's in some sort of liminal space between the two. Vader is completely in black. You know, you have like all this sort of visual storytelling happening to tell us that these characters, that these characters are who they are. The critiques of Campbell's journey, of course, are that it was written in the 70s and it doesn't really take into account non-white male stories, let's say. I mean... Just to go back to your first point, though, anything yeah. that was written in the 70s is suspect. Yeah. It's just the 70s were a weird time. Uh, But his general claim that most stories across different traditions have things in common is not a bad claim. It's just, it's also very masculine, Um, the way he describes the stock characters. If you listen to the ones I just described to you, there's only one that a woman really fits into, and that's the princess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, obviously, there are more characters than that. Um, it's just that a lot of storytellers have not been imaginative enough because they've been men to think of different roles that women could play. And so that brings it's, us it's into... It's very Tolkien, right? It's very Lord of the yes, Rings, right? Yes, very Lord of the Rings. Well, uh, Tolkien would have loved Campbell, I think. But this brings us to the characters of this film. Um, because Lucas is making this conscious decision to base these characters on these stock Ropes, I should say. So let's talk about Luke Skywalker as the hero of this film and as someone who's just beginning his arc into the hero's journey throughout these three films. Sam, do you want to go first? Luke Skywalker. I, I can go first. And it's a bold move of George Lucas to make the most likable character not Luke. <laughs> as Lazzie points Who out. Who is he's the most likable character? Han. I was going to go with Chewie, but okay. But the, well, the point yeah. <laughs> is, not Luke. So Campbell doesn't get his theory without Jung, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the idea of 
all of this is uh, Jung's collective unconscious, and and that's where archetypes come from. And it, Jung is basically saying if we share biological material, DNA, that all make us basically DNA is real midichlorians, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was probably actually where midichlorians right. come from. But okay. but what Jung is saying is that that we don't just carry genetics. I mean, he wasn't saying this directly, but in reality, he, we're not just carrying genetics and predispositions to certain biological elements. We are carrying the collective unconscious. We are carrying these stories, and there's a reason these stories resonate. And when someone violates these stories we feel violated too i mean that that's that's the point here and as you pointed out it it has some limitations to it i think jung's original archetype was literally the woman <laughs> there's a part of the western canon which is a book by harold bloom a professor who died and everybody was happy about it everyone was so happy about it it was weird schadenfreude like on display anyway he actually said there's a reason why Shakespeare is the best author ever in the history of ever. And he said, he says, he makes a big point to say, now, hold on. I know he was a white European, but stick with me. If you went to deepest, darkest India, and he wasn't that bad when he said it, but he's damn close. And you put on Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, they get it. And the reason they get it is basically the Jungian archetypes and that's why Shakespeare is he he is the person to tap into those with the most artistry well bullshit anyway I was about to say that sounds like bollocks to me like as if as if you couldn't put on a play from any village anywhere in the world anywhere else in the world and they wouldn't say it because the human experience is fundamentally similar right and and that experience is white and English. Like, yeah, and, well, he spends like, a lot of time. That is the archetype for everyone. Yeah. It's funny that he spends so much time in this book, even though he admits that, of course, most of the great epics weren't written in English. He is the the capital A Anglophile who is clearly just very disappointed that he was born an American, and quite couldn't figure out how to square that circle. Which is also, I think, it's very interesting that that we have two very classical British actors in this movie. But to come yes. back to Luke Skywalker, to get to the point, to the thing that you asked me, is that another Jungian thing that comes up in these films is the idea of the shadow, or the shadow self, if you want to call it. And so what, what Jung thought was really important was that you are able to face that shadow self, to face the the things that are not so good about yourself, right? That was, that's the true, that's the hard stuff, right? And Luke is going to get to do that in the next movie. Although Lucas didn't know about the next movie at this point. So I find it curious, knowing he didn't know what was going to happen in the next movie, that he just creates this like, Manic Pixie Dream Boy, basically. <laughs> Luke Skywalker. We need him Manic to fly Pixie an X-Wing. Boy. Have you ever done that before, kid? No. In fact, I haven't even been to the... Shut up, stop talking, here are the keys, let's go. Has yeah. R2 ever been a... Uh, I guess they can all do that. All right, fine. You know, it's just... 
He's the Kid hero. Kid okay, like he's got to be able to go on the hero's journey. So no, I get it. Yeah, he's a bit whiny. I mean, yeah. like fundamentally, he starts out a bit whiny. You can sense his frustration with and his chafing at a simple farm hand's life. You can sense that, and there are obviously bits of the um, bits of the film that were cut that they that they um, they filmed in terms of like starting with him observing this a space battle um, and setting up that sort of that yearning to do something more, that yearning to leave home, which is why it's then interesting that he, when initially offered that by um, uh, by Kenobi decide it sort of pushes back and says oh no i can't leave i've got to i've got to stay and and you know and obi-wan talks about you know that's your uncle talking and how how that sort of manifested in in him he's still pretty whiny most of the way through but he's gosh darn it he's just so peter parker he's so chipper he's so cute he's so cute he's so keen he's so enthusiastic he's um you know um he's so full of himself as well in terms of just like the ability to go up to, to Han Solo and say I'm not such a bad pilot myself or uh, to tell him that his spaceship that they've just rented is is crap <laughs> right so um you know he's got the confidence to get in an X-wing and even just to be like we're gonna go save the princess like right now yeah with no plan. yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she's 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 in a prison on this massive death moon uh so Let, let's go like let's we can just do go this. get it because yeah. we can break in the the three of us yeah who who one of us who has literally never left the planet before in his life the desert planet so yeah I, he's he's still a you know he's your way in and it, he kind of works right like he's 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 a bit whiny but he's not too whiny uh, he's not so much so that he becomes off-putting or annoying. You you never, or I, well, uh, you never talk for other people, but like I never feel like you're not on Luke's side, even when he's a little bit whiny. You still like kind of get it, and he's not off-putting in a way that some other Star Wars characters are, and some other you know sci-fi fantasy characters. Are. So we all know that twentieth century Fox. Let Lucas have a lot of creative control over this film, which he demanded. And Lucas really wanted to cast a bunch of unknowns in these roles. He didn't want people to like look at Luke Skywalker and think, oh, that's Brando or, you know, whatever. Um, and so he wanted to cast a bunch of unknowns. But 20th Century Fox said, look, you do have to have one actor in this that's a name. Like we're, we're not we got to hedge our bets a little bit here in terms of like box office draw. And so Lucas went with Alec Guinness, who is, of course, an extremely talented actor, has done so much, you know, throughout the 20th century in terms of cinema. Um, and it took him a while to convince Alec Guinness to do this film because famously Alec Guinness was not interested in doing this film. But the way he convinced him was to tell him, you're going to play the mentor character in the hero's journey. You're going to play this character. And that's what initially interested Alec Guinness in this. What do we think about Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yeah, I mean, he's he's the one who's most confident. Of all of the characters we meet, he's the one who... When you meet, you go, this person is in full control of themselves and knows what, what what they are, what they're doing. I mean, Han Solo is cocky, but he's not confident in the same way. He's not in... He's always flying by the seat of his, his pants. He's never in full control of the situation. So I think 
uh, Alec. Oh, Tarkin probably as then, if you want to get into your your dark dark mirrors and your negascots of everything, you've got Tarkin as the as the as the shadow self of um, of Obi Wan in this. So both of those actors who are, you know, elder British stagemen, both. Uh, in, both arrive and both persist through the entire films in in states of utter confidence, in utter knowledge of who they are, and utter control of the situation. Even when, in both cases, they're not, because in both cases, they die, albeit one of whom sacrifices himself, and one of whom dies because his death moon is blown up. But in both cases, they they they're given a possibility of of fleeing or of departure and obi-wan is could find a way to escape but effectively just completely gives it gives himself up and transforms or whatever the hell they ever intended that to be when the first time it happened and and tarkin is given that opportunity to escape as well but says no not not in our moment of triumph um so i think alec guinness is fantastic and i think he's an anchor for the whole film sam what do you think about alec guinness and peter cushing's performance i love the pairing of the two together it's hard for me to answer that question because for me growing up when i did and watching star wars as many times as i did the question really is what do i think about alec guinness doing literally anything else yeah right what what do i think about obi-wan kenobi in kind hearts and coronets or the Lady Killers or the Lavender Hill Mob, right? It's just, it's so weird to see him do anything else. Uh, much easier with Peter Cushing because that's a character straight out of his previous parts. I also have to say, thinking about it, I realize I don't really care. And I, th- I just had to quickly interrogate myself, why is that? I think I've always cared about what happens after Return of the Jedi instead of what happens before. And so, you know, I was I think I was a little honestly disappointed when I heard it was going to be prequels, not sequels, back a long, long time ago. It's really funny thinking about Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan Kenobi. I, he's there. I mean, he's a straight-up mentor yeah, archetype. I know. Like, I guess he is, the, the he point is playing is, very much into that very specific character. I, I realized this when we saw... The, his return in Rebels. Right. Obi-Wan Kenobi is Ewan McGregor. Oh, so you that, think that he does a better job? I grew or up you with have this him. movie. Yeah. I do not think of Obi-Wan Kenobi as Alec Guinness. Interesting. Yeah. Congratulations, you've won. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think... So I've seen Rebels. I haven't seen Clone Wars. I don't have the most positive a, a view of the prequels, with the exception of Ewan McGregor's performance as Obi-Wan, where he's certainly having a lot of fun. I found the most recent Kenobi show to be very discardable. So I don't know. I don't, I can't see, I can, I almost think that they're different characters because I cannot see the serenity of Alec Guinness in any of the versions that Ewan McGregor has played. 
And theoretically, that would be because he's now learned, he's older, and he's now learned how to survive after death, right? That's the explanation that we're given is that, you know, when he says, you will strike, if I, you strike me down, I'll become more powerful. Obviously, putting aside anything Lucas may have thought at the time, if we read that in the context of the series as a whole, like he has now learned how to force Ghost, right? And so for him, that may be a great comfort to him thinking about becoming one with the force or, or however you want to describe what happens after death. Moving along through the cast, we also get, of course, Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia. And it's hard to think of another role where she is more iconic than in this with her space buns and her white dress. What do we think about Carrie Fisher in this role? She's great. She's great. No <laughs> notes. No notes. <laughs> I mean, I I think Lucas has a problem writing women. And so shes I don't think she's maybe given as much to do as she could. But I think that Carrie Fisher is so winning that it works for me. I think she's given a lot more to do than, say, Padme. Um, I think that, yes, she's, yes, okay, she's rescued, but she starts, she starts the film by spitting in this terrifying demon's face, basically. She's got that spittle and spite from, from, and that is, that's Carrie's performance, uh, agreed, but but she's given that to do. You know, yes, she's rescued, but within... 20 seconds of being rescued she's the one taking control and rescue the rescuing them you know she's not grateful uh, for the rescue she's ordering walking carpets to get out of their way she's taking control of the situation and then she takes a backseat in the final act uh, you know in the final battle because the boys have to go fly off in their in their ships to to take on the world but um she is very similar to the princess character in the hidden fortress i will say that Yeah, I mean, I love this character, and I agree with you that her dialogue and Carrie Fisher's performance, I think, elevates it beyond just being the princess who has to be saved, right? Harrison Ford, in one of his first film roles, his very first one was American Graffiti, and this one in a very minor role. Uh, This is one of his first major film roles. I feel like this character is iconic and we talked a lot in Solo about how it's fundamentally unfair to compare anyone to him because his acting style is so unique in a really strange way. Yeah, I definitely think Ewan McGregor stands up better against Alec Guinness than whichever Ansel Ancelary Elgorty person it was. Is it Ansel Elgort or is it the other one? There's two of them. They're the same. Alden Ehrenreich. Alden Elgort. <laughs> is is yeah is nowhere near nowhere near as 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 uh, as close a performer and has a harder harder job to 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 stand up to that uh, as well but um yeah no i mean harrison ford makes the makes the film right like if it if it if that character is not there it's a just it's not as much fun there's no release it's very serious everyone's very tense you've got a character who can go around insult literally everyone in the film but still be the roguish charmer who, um, with the heart of gold, who comes back to save the day at the end. I mean, who doesn't love a roguish charmer with a heart of gold? I mean, they're even better if they're Cajuns with uh, kinetic playing cards as well. Ah, yes. Ooh, could Harrison Ford play Gambit like in his younger days? Yes, 100%. Okay, I would like to read from the D&D fifth edition. 
Is this going to be a dramatic reading? Rogues rely on stealth <laughs> and their foes' vulnerabilities to get the upper hand in any situation. They have a knack for finding the solution to just about any problem, demonstrating a resourcefulness and versatility that is the cornerstone of any successful adventuring party. Princess Leia. <laughs> I love their rapport too. Like immediately, we're supposed to think this is a love triangle pretty much from the get-go, although that gets developed more in in Empire. But, you know, the idea that you have the earnest hero, you know, who wants to rescue the princess and then you have the rogue. But I honestly feel like Leia and Han instantly have way more chemistry than Luke and Leia have. Again, putting aside any revelations that we will find out later about Luke and Leia, I do feel like, I don't know, does anyone else feel that way about them? I'd never think of them as a thruple. Uh Agreed. I agree. And I think that... You know, you look at Luke, literally the first thing he says when he sees the hologram of Leia is, who is she? She's beautiful. And I think, like, the first thing Han says when uh, he sees Leia is, maybe you'd like it back in your cell, your highness. Yeah. Right? Like, so <laughs> it's it's the difference in, in their... Frankly, one is an adult-adult, even if it's spiky relationship, and one is a little bit of a parent-child, even if they're brother and sister relationship. I feel like even if we took the sibling thing out of it and they weren't related, that Leia would, like, run Luke over. Like, she would just... He yeah. would not know what to do she with gives her. Him pats on the head, right? Like, you know, she... You know, the, the relationship in, in Empire is a perfect, perfect example of that. But I think that... He's enthusiastic, he's keen, but he's not what she... she. The, yeah, I completely agree with your fundamental statement, which is that her and Han have immediately way more chemistry than, um, than uh, she does with Luke at all. So I want to talk about some of the other characters later when we get to the lighter side of the Force, but of course we cannot end any conversation about Star Wars without talking about the most iconic character of all, Darth Vader, who we, of course, have seen in some of our other films that we've talked about so far, but this was his official introduction, of course, into Star Wars. Body, played by David Prowse, and, of course, voiced by James Earl Jones. We get the iconic breathing sound effect and the John Williams score around him. The the black, the matte, the, it's not a matte helmet, it's a shiny helmet, right, in this one. Uh, what do we think about Darth Vader, especially thinking about what we've already talked about in terms of the villain is often the shadow self of the hero or a re dark reflection of the hero? So I, I'm not sure I see him as a dark reflection of Luke. I think there is a, a differential there. But in terms of his intimidation factor, I think he's, you know, he's an all-time villain. The only only villain I think is better executed in all of cinema possibly is Shere Khan in the um, in the Disney Jungle Book which I still maintain is the best villain introduction much better than the book version actually but the best villain introduction that, that I know of he comes in again he's not in the initial fights but he comes in and is immediately terrifying is immediately strangling someone he's got his one-liners against everyone he's he's um angry there's that 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 he's never 
calm and serene in the way that Obi-Wan is, but he's angry uh, in that other way. And if we put that in context with what we've seen before with Anakin, this makes perfect sense, right? That he would be angry because Anakin was always angry. Um, and this yeah. this version of him is much angrier, I think, than than even Anakin was, even though it's been however many years, 17, 18 years since since the events of Revenge of the Sith. First of all, uh, I do refer to his helmet in this as the matte hat, and it is not matte. That is true. It does have a reflective quality, but the helmet that he has in future episodes, you could style your hair in. Yeah, that's I just true. want to point out <laughs> his costume changes get a little gets a little bit blingier, gets a little shinier. This is this is definitely the outfit of a guy who's seen some things, and. His relationship to Anakin. To be very clear, Darth Vader is not the main villain of any of these three movies. That's true. Second of all, R2-D2 is the most iconic Star Wars character. Okay, I'm sorry. I genuinely was surprised when you said Darth Vader a minute ago. I said the most iconic villain. I I think Darth Vader is more iconic Play back the entire movie. Okay, well, I meant villain. Uh, Okay, well, (laughs) okay, fair enough. Uh, Yeah. But, you know, the point is Tarkin's the main villain of the first movie, and then... Vader's the villain of... Vader's the villain of the second one, but Boba Fett and uh, the Emperor definitely take some some attention away from that. The, The reason I'm mentioning this is I've talked about how much of a hard time I have with the Tusken Raiders and the Younglings. And, you know, part of... Why why don't you just murder them, then? Why don't you just... So part of what Marvel, in large degree, but other ancillaries have done is to make Vader out to be a character who matches the worst of what matches and really maybe exceeds the worst of what Anakin does. You know, a lot of it is being constantly toyed with by the Emperor because that's what Sith do to show their love, apparently. This guy this Darth Vader dude it's much easier to retroactively see Darth Vader in Star Wars as somebody who is the conflicted character in beginning an empire and then into Return of the Jedi I can see that much more easily in this movie than I can the Anakin Skywalker of the prequels this character even at his most clean slate, where you could interpret this guy to be anything, I actually can't uh, compare him to Anakin. Oh, yeah. And by the way, there's a third actor who plays uh, Darth Vader. He's the one who shows up as a Force ghost at the end of Return of the Jedi. That's right. I will definitely know his name in two days. He's replaced by Hayden Christensen. Right. Yeah, I hate that. I hate that. And it's not even in the special editions, right? Because the special editions predated... Uh, oh, that's Christian, right. It's like so a later one. It's, yes, it's yeah. later than that. You assume it. You assume that you you want to blame everything negative on the special editions, and that's that's not unreasonable. <laughs> um, I agree, I agree with you, Sam. I think that this Darth Vader, his arc across these three films makes more sense than when you've got not so much Phantom Menace, Anakin, but certainly. Very irrational Anakin, very fluctuating and tempestuous Anakin in 
in two and three. And Anakin of the prequels would never say anything as cool as, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And we'll we'll get into this more tomorrow, I know. But, you know, the really interesting thing here is that, you know, Luke has some issues coming up, but he turns into more or less an okay Jedi or whatever uh, with not great mentorship. And I mean, that's supposed to be the real story, right? Is that Anakin had, you know, Yoda didn't do him right. You know, and and neither did anybody else, and he and he goes bad in this way. Luke is the same thing, and what the prequels get wrong in this respect is it should have been a much more nuanced take on that. Like, if Anakin is not a mass killer, his being unclear, his being manipulable because he didn't have good mentorship makes a lot more sense. Right. The great thing about this unintentional first part of a trilogy is we really see the ground laid out pretty well. Thankfully, Lucas had helped to stick the landing. Very quickly, one thing before we move on is the sacrifice of Obi-Wan, right? That the acceptance of death in order to move on. I do think that that is such an important part of this film. Like, and, and again, I don't know the Cambellian story that well, so maybe that is what the mentor always does. But that acceptance of death and that trigger for Luke's growth and transformation, I do think is worth calling out. And I think it's played as it is. It was a shock when it happened uh, to me, even even though I cannot remember and I could not tell you the first time I ever saw this. I still find that that lights that red lightsaber swing whilst Luke is across the, the hall at the Falcon and then the suddenly the the body isn't there, I think is is a, a, f- a fantastic bit of storytelling. So that actually is a great transition into our next segment, Meanwhile, Somewhere That Isn't Tatooine, because one of the things that we've been watching is the Vice documentary about Lucas and about making the Star Wars films. And that decision, one of the things about the Vice documentary is that makes it special is that they got Marsha Lucas to sit down and actually talk about her experience working on these films with George Lucas, which is something that she doesn't do very often. And she claims that she is the one who told him to kill Obi-Wan in that particular scene, because in the original script, he actually is just alive the whole film, but he doesn't have anything to do in the third act. He's just sitting there, you know, watching the X-Wings do stuff. And she says, no, you need like something, you need some kind of loss in this film. You need some kind of stakes in this film. And if he's not going to do anything in the last third, and you are telling us that the force is something that is mystical and connects everything, you can have him deliver these lines after death. And so she's always like, I'm the one who killed Obi-Wan Kenobi. But, you know, it's, it is very interesting to know some of the storytelling influences that she had on these particular films. Um, because according to her, quite a bit. Um, there were quite a few things that she said, this needs to happen in order for the story to make sense. Sam, we watched the Vice documentary and the ILM documentary. What are some of the things that you took from those docs that affected your viewing of this film? I'm having to think about that because I'm getting warmed up for our next segment. I'm getting ready. I but, know you are. Yeah. Uh, and well, as a as a preview, and this is the thing that I've 
that I've learned from watching the process of this made visually, which first of all, I and, and we haven't watched Empire Dreams yet. We'll get to that. But it's so interesting that almost all of this documentary stuff is about the visual effects. You know, it's like there was a whole other part of this movie that, that we're not even going to talk about because of how much that movie was made at that office building. And the thing that's really interesting is knowing that, that you talk about John Dykstra and friends, the, the big story is Lucas comes back from shooting the film that he comes in over half of their budget has been spent and they've shot three frames, three, three sequences. And, or it might just be two, but it was two. It was right. the, uh, the escape pod dropping from the Carillion ship and the, um, one of the guns on the death star at the, in the last battle. So it's those two. But the point is he, Lucas gets really upset that the a lot of the or most of the money's been spent and this is all they have to show for it. But when you're building completely new technology, and by the way, this is how engineers work. It's maddening. You will not <laughs> it will look like they've done fuck all until like ten minutes before things are over because they have spent their time assembling, preparing, scaffolding note-taking, discussing, thinking, ruminating, considering, pondering. And then they finally do the thing at the end. And this is typical of that. And something that will come up with the special editions and before that and after that is they never, just like Andy Samberg, these people have never stopped never stopping. (laughs) They are always trying to figure out how to make Matt work better, how to make syncing better. And it, it's fascinating to watch as somebody who is endlessly annoyed by uh, Lucas's tinkering with a quote-unquote final project, which Lucas doesn't believe in. Right. He doesn't believe in the final product. It is fascinating to see all this happen. Well, I mean, and I think Lucas actually says this in one of the documentaries in the ILM one where he says, like, if he could just, like, hook electrodes up to his brain and the movie will just be what's in his brain that would be the perfect movie for him. Um, And so that kind of explains his relationship with special effects and the way that he keeps tinkering with them. I thought that both documentaries were great. There is some overlap between the two. But what I found very interesting, too, was Marsha Lucas's role in making this film what it is because they pointed out that the original editor of the film, which was an English editor, was basically didn't understand what this film was. Nobody understood what this film was. And so he Hmm. kept trying to cut it into like a comedy like camp he wanted he thought this was camp basically and so he was trying to do that and then lucas finally just gave it to marcia who had who was considered at the time one of the best editors i mean she had done stuff for uh coppola and um i think spielberg too at this point and so she sat down and like recut with paul hirsch the entire film using like world war ii footage for like the like she put that in as like that that that's what's going to happen here this is what it's going to look like and like she's the one who decides that obi-wan is going to die she's the one who cuts out that weird scene at the beginning that lucas originally had of luke like hanging out at tashi station she's like you don't need this she's the one who convinces him to keep 
that line in where Han tells Luke, may the force be with you, because she was like, that's important to his character. You have to keep that in there. And so, like, you know, there is a lot. She's the one who puts the clock on the ending because there was no clock on the ending. The There's 15 minutes until they they reach the the rebel base. And she was like, no, there has to be a sense of urgency here. We have to put a clock on it. And if you want, look at the footage where they're like, 10 minutes to the rebel base. Nobody's actually oh, talking yeah, no, on screen. It it's a yeah. it's a voiceover. <laughs> so like thinking about her and thinking about the ways in which, you know, and there's a lot of other people involved in this production. And we've talked about auteur theory and how George has claimed that he is the auteur of Star Wars. And I do believe that to a, a large degree that, that George Lucas, he has the vision, he has the world building, he's the ideas man. But when you look at these documentaries, you realize just how many other people had to be involved for this movie to exist <laughs> in the way that it does. Look, I, I'm no student of film, but to me, auteur theory is like trickle-down economics. It's a lie that rich white men tell. Like, it is, you can have a vision, but you cannot execute anything on your own. And to believe that you are, you, you're, you can spring a film fully formed from your forehead as if you were Zeus... And you create the most perfect thing as sort of to the metaphor of your hook of the electrodes up and then it happens and no one else got in the way of it as if it as if the other people didn't make this perfectly, you know, as if the other as if uh, Ralph McQuarrie didn't create the artwork that that made this a success as if the the people who designed the ships weren't there as if the actors and the performances didn't make this film. Yeah, I have minimal time for that theory, as much as I have minimal time for trickle-down economics. Yeah, and just like even, like they had to invent a new camera to do this. Yeah. Like it, just the amount of just, and the way they tell it, uh, John Dykstra especially, is that like he hired everyone that was good at like just the most random shit, but who weren't established in the industry. So that way when he told them to do something, they wouldn't think it was impossible. <laughs> and so like, you know, I love, I love that story. The final thing I'll say before I turn it over to you, Lazi, to talk about some of the other ancillary material is Lucas apparently showed a very early version, a very rough cut of this roughest of cuts to Spielberg, Coppola and De Palma. Cause they all hung out basically together at that time. This was like the new generation of filmmakers that was, that was starting new to make inklings. films. Yeah, exactly. And uh, De Palma didn't like any of the Force stuff, but helped him rewrite the scroll uh, at the beginning. That is De Palma, apparently, who rewrote it because it was so horrible. It didn't make sense. But the only one who liked it, like, full-heartedly was like, yes, this is perfect, is Spielberg, which doesn't surprise me because I feel like this movie was made for Spielberg. I feel like he was, like, sitting in a chair swinging his legs like making like pew pew sounds like as stuff as stuff was going by. Um, but you can like see that in him where he's like, this is great. Like, this is what I want. Oh, I mean, if you if you wrap this Indiana Jones, E.T. and uh, Third Encounters around each other, you know, they all hug together in, in symbiosis. Absolutely. OK, but you had under this uh, some of the stuff that I haven't read. I know Sam has read some of it. Uh, but do you want to talk about some of the literature that surrounds Star Wars as a film? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll probably cut down just to a couple of these things because we've nearly been going two hours already. There's there was a couple of books around at the time, like Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which is sort of set in between this and Empire in terms of Luke going off to find crystals and and Darth Vader sort of hunting him. Um, there's a bunch of different uh, comics from back in the day that, that came out around this. But it, since about, I think it's about 2015, Marvel have been publishing new Star Wars comics. An awful lot of the early ones were written um, by Kieran Gillen, who's um, not Karen Gillen. Um, as, already, <laughs> as we've established uh, on a previous episode. <laughs> and he did a fantastic job, I think, of writing Darth Vader comic, and, and a couple of the sort of um, spin-offs of that. But particularly he came up with this character called Dr. Aphra, who is a evil space lesbian Indiana Jones with murder yeah, shadow selves of... Uh, <laughs> so Sam's giving me a thumbs up, so I assume she approves of that description. I, I love Doc Aphra. I really do. And uh, she is the character I most want to appear in uh, live yes. action Star Wars. And I also have said previously that Doc Afra could be, if we're not going to have Mara Jade, she could be the closest thing to, they could put, they could graft parts of her character onto Afra, And apparently they have. So good for me. <laughs> Bring her back. Have her hang out with Ahsoka. Have them both like, you know, just like rag on Luke endlessly, and then she ends up with him. That's what I want. You should write for the Star Wars. I just I mean, it can't be any worse than the people who did. <laughs> I just wanted to point out, Splinter of the Mind's Eye did come up in the Vice documentary because apparently that was Lucas's plan B. If Star Wars didn't go well, he was trying to angle for a sequel so he could be like, look at this book. It's it's about Star Wars and it's going to be real low budget because it takes place on a planet with a bunch of fog. So like, you know, and then, of course, Star Wars was so popular that he didn't need to do that for for the sequel. I, I, I just wanted to bring up one other thing, which was the, the computer game X-Wing, which which I think was uh, early to mid 90s when it or maybe late 90s when it first came out. And that, to me, was one of... There, there's an awful lot of computer games that, that are around the Star Wars universe. A lot of them more recently are, you know, some of the some of the sort of Jedi ones, some of the sort of big Space Armada ones. Uh, there was an a, um, arcade game where you did a Death Star trench run and you were, like, sat in the cockpit of an X-Wing that I always, and without fail, um, died in. Uh, but <laughs> X-Wing was one of my... Um, one of my absolute favorite games when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, the reason I got a joystick uh, to attach to my computer and uh, was very much set around this time and did, I think, a fantastic job of, uh, uh, given the uh, given what computer graphics were like at the time, of, again, sort of setting things and moving things forward. Is Sam going to date check me when it actually came out now? I, I was looking that up. I know that X... I, I'm having, actually, trouble finding it. Uh, X-Wing, so X-Wing came out, then TIE Fighter, then X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, which came out in 97. But I okay. do want to point right. out Wing Commander 3 came out in 1994, yes, which is not Star Wars, but it was my introduction. It was also a computer game. It was my introduction to voice actor Mark Hamill. 
Yes, Mark Hamill has gone on to have a prolific voice acting career, which I think may be like almost, I mean, nothing's going to be as big of claim to fame as Luke Skywalker, but he, he has voiced some pretty iconic characters also. All right, Sam, it's your turn for Max Rebo's Retcon Corner. All right, and truly the inspiration, if you've been paying attention, if you know who Max Rebo is, the reason for this segment is to talk about the 1997 special editions as well as the things that happened in the prequel that broke the original series and really just the wish that we could retcon the sequel series. But in this case, this is where... Let's go back to 1997. Sam goes to the theater. Sam sits down on opening night with just excitement prisons of excitement in the air everybody's gonna get to see the star wars on the big screen and boom it happens and it's beautiful it's beautiful because it looks great and by the way by the way before we get to the train wreck that is things that will happen lucas will claim quite correctly that he has been making changes and improvements to the to this movie since 1978. And he's right. As a matter of fact, I did find it. The theatrical release in 1981 is when we first see Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Mats have been fixed. Sinks have been fixed. Effects have been improved. But 97 is the complete refresh. The THX certified soundtrack. (laughs) And none of that's a problem. None of it. It's all great. And, you know, Lucas has been doing it all along. What happens on that that first release? The trouble doesn't really start for me until Empire. But here we start to see things that are innocuous. And things that are generally just very impressive. Moss Eisley becomes a hive of scum and villainy, not just a set, right? It becomes what you imagine when Obi-Wan Kenobi describes it. You just have a lot more of these big details, these background things, replacing some of the matte paintings with CGI. And that's fine. Then we see... In between the negotiation of the price and Docking Bay 94, we see Han Solo come up to Jabba the Hutt. A smaller Jabba the Hutt. One who can move on his own, you know, his own momentum. He did a lot of growing between this film but, and Return but of the in Jedi. Order, in order to make this scene happen... To use 1997, because we're not 1977 Harrison Ford, because we're not going to de-age him. To make it work, to use this outtake from the original film on a new CG job of the hut, Han has to step on his tail. And by the way, Boba Fett's there. Okay, those things are odd. What's really problematic with this film is what's happened minutes before, where. Greedo shoots first because apparently Han Solo being a rogue is not acceptable in the 90s. So let's, you know, he he only shot retaliation. What kind of ACAB bullshit is this? (laughs) Anyway, I took issue with that, but I'm willing to let it go. 
There's there's nothing so terrible in this movie, but I had a bad feeling about this. And so when we start to change things, we actually get who the hell is Biggs? Well, we know Big now. Stock Lotto. We know that now because there's a scene inserted at the end of the movie on Yavin 4 where we get to see that he knows somebody because that guy was name-checked once on Tatooine. But we now get to see he's somebody who Luke knew before all this started. So when he dies, it actually means something. Now, I was really disappointed when the scene on Tatooine was taken out because I knew it existed by this point. Apparently, that was not a bad decision. No, it was not. But, I've seen that scene. But I really <laughs> wish there was more context with Biggs. So for me, this this was a wash, right? Nothing's really... The only real retcon that I can think of in A New Hope is Han no longer shooting first. That bothers me. But if it were just all that, I might still watch it. It's really what's going to happen in the next two movies. But 1997 is the point where George Lucas really goes from tinkering to perfect to this is my movie, not yours, Buck and you. Which, to be fair, it is his movie. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about backfilling a little bit on this podcast and the problems of doing like a prequel trilogy when you did not intend to do one originally or didn't think you were going to do one originally. The biggest thing that sticks out to me, of course, is that Obi-Wan and Uncle Owen don't know the droids. <laughs> like you like I know that C-3PO was with Owen in in we, we learned that in Attack of the Clones. I mean, I am also, as said before, one of those people who doesn't think R2's memory has been wiped. That's just. A no, thing. it definitely hasn't been. Like it hasn't it, it, been, and it doesn't it. matter if 3PO's has or not because he doesn't know what's going on at any given time anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it does it sometimes bother me a little bit the way that, like, Obi-Wan is just, like, has no idea who R2 is despite in Revenge of the Sith being, like, arguing with Anakin over how effective R2 is. And so, like, you know, there is a little bit of that mis- mismatch going on. Yeah, I mean, so... I'll take the two in order. So the first point about the about um, the special editions, I think the changes in the special editions, all of them fall into one of two camps. They either add depth or they add distraction. And I like the depth to your point about things that were map paintings or things that were just blank walls now have make now open up the world. The distractions are so bad that they draw you out of the movie. That none so egregious as in Return of the Jedi, but uh, where they literally break the fourth wall. But all of, all of the distraction ones are are trying to add comedy, and they do a terrible job of it. So there's a, there's a scene in Mos Eisley where there's basically a near crash, and. Uh, because people are just flying around, scooting around, and and then there's obviously the the hand stepping on Jabba's tail. So rather than go, well, Jabba was originally played by a rotund Scotsman, um, so Han Solo could walk around him. Uh, we now know two films later that he's a big slug. Um, so rather than go, look, this just doesn't make any sense. Why are we doing it? It adds nothing to the film. They just try and try and not just make him 
uh, walk over Jabba's tail, but step on it, and then Jabba has a reaction. And then no one talks about it. Jabba doesn't say, uh, don't step on my fucking tail, you prick. Right? Like, he just goes... <laughs> he, he just goes, oh, yeah, okay, Han, you can go away. I'm like, that is... It's it's so bad. Like, the, uh, I like the depth. The depth adds 10% to the film. The distraction takes away 20%. Uh, and, and Han shooting first is, you know a meme off the back of of how much everyone hated that change. It, it's also important to point out that Lucas continued to make changes after the 1997 special edition. I've heard tell, I've actually heard it, Ben Kenobi's little Tatooine scream to scare off the, the sand yeah, people. Yeah, it changes. It's changed yeah. as well, which is yeah, just... Changed. Also, Greedo now says McClunky when he gets shot. Uh, no one knows why. Um, these, I think, were changed for the Disney Plus release, I think. Uh, but yeah, Greedo says McClunky when he gets shot. I don't know why. It doesn't add anything. And Obi-Wan's scream is a little bit more intimidating than what was previously just like the sound of a washing machine spinning up. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think that change is that bad because I don't think the original sound effect is particularly good but but yeah but but what i want to talk about in terms of retcons is what new hope feels like as a as a kappa or as a cherry or as whatever you want to call it on the top of the story of the of the formation and first success of the rebellion and on the story of cassian andor and um i know some of our listeners Notably, Elise has not seen Andor yet, so um, I don't want to give too many spoilers about that. But uh, they're going to get the Death Star plans to the Rebels <laughs> eventually, and casting that's, Andor plays a large role in that. That is in Rogue One. That's less so in Andor, though. <laughs> We're going to get there, though. <laughs> Those that sh- that show and that film add so much depth of shading to what it means what the nature of rebellion is what the sacrifices of rebellion is what you know Stellan Skarsgård's speech towards the end of I think it's episode 10 to to counterbalance the comparative simplicity with which uh, Luke destroys <laughs> destroys an entire death moon is it it adds that it adds weight behind it it's like if you see an old master painting and from far away or from on a computer screen where it's small, you see white. And then when you step up, you see there is 50 layers of paint that have built up the, the hints of gray and blue and green and yellow that are the way that light plays through and around the white to make it meaningful to make it emotional, to make it impactful. And and those aspects, and I, I would have never said, yeah, tell me the story of, of how they find the plans or tell me the story of how the rebellion starts. Like you, Sam, I was way more interested in what the stories that happen after Jedi than what are the happen- stories that happened before. But I think what, what uh, and I don't need every Star Wars story to be like this either, but what Tony Gilroy and what um, Diego Luna 
and what um, all the other actors and performers and writers and uh, cinematographers have done with those films and those shows is truly add depth to what it was kind of a simple story. And it makes me appreciate A New Hope more. Doesn't make New Hope as it was conceived and executed on its own better, but as a part of a wider story, it makes me really like it uh, in a way that the prequels completely and utterly failed to do. I'm really glad you said that last part. And by the way, I would add, honestly, I would add Rebels to that as well. Yeah, um, Rebels. I, I've I, seen. I haven't seen. Yeah. I haven't seen Clone Wars, but I've seen Rebels. But I think it it goes to your point that those shows, and it's very similar to something I said. Um, oh, on one of the episodes we haven't released yet, that those two movies and the works that happen around them do so much better. I I actually was talking. I wasn't really talking about Solo. I guess I was just talking about Rogue One, but also you know uh, Rebels about how well those really fill out the universe in a way the prequels don't. But what's really striking to me and kind of really gets at the heart of of this segment is how that can happen, how so much more nuance and interest can be added to this movie, Star Wars, from 1977. But that also... I think what's really so interesting about this movie that's been chipped away at is that it can be part of a larger universe, but it also can be this astonishing, amazing, groundbreaking. There will never, ever, ever be another movie like Star Wars. There can't be. The level of ingenuity and genius, not just by George Lucas, but all of those people. And every time you replace something with a CGI shot, you ruin it. You cheapen it. You make it just another movie. There's nothing wrong with movies. I love movies. But Star Wars is a work of genius. So many geniuses. (laughs) So many geniuses. The simple comparison, I think, in your point there is is the Matrix and the creativity that went into the the bullet time shots uh, and the physical work the physical work that went into those bullet time shots versus the oh we think we can do this in a computer now of the matrix is it uh, which one's the second one I've forgotten. reloaded <laughs> reloaded yeah um and and the you know and them going okay well we're going to push the boundaries again because we have to we were we were known for pushing the boundaries and therefore we have to double down because otherwise what are we doing let's not focus on story let's focus on the boundary pushing and that's to me what happened with the prequels you know we were known for pushing boundaries yeah that's lucas's issue i think because he sa- even says that like in some of the documentaries where it's like i have to keep pushing like i have to keep going before i get uh, into our last segment i did want to go back to your point very quickly lazi i said this actually yesterday when i was talking about rogue one um, and we were talking more in depth about andor as a show i think what works really well putting andor and star wars side by side as being two different parts of the same story is that george lucas knows that fascism is bad but Tony Gilroy knows how it is bad. And I think 
those two things complement each other very, very well when looked at together. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think this is a good segue, but the comparison for me is the Stormtroopers. Yes. The Stormtroopers, in even in this, you know, only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise that they literally never hit anything for the rest of the rest of the um, uh, film after hitting the barn door that is the Jawa Sandcrawler, right? And they're, they're comic relief. They bonk, bonk their heads on things and, you know, they fail to, to close the door at the right time so Han and Chewie can escape, but they can't. In Andor, they are scary. Yes. And they are they are shown as what it means when you step up from from this sort of local civilian indirect authority to the direct strong arm of an occupying fascist power and i think uh, i think they their reflection between the two and i completely agree like tony gilroy knows how it's bad and shows how it's bad doesn't just say fascists are bad obviously we all know this and tony gilroy is operating in a world where perhaps we need to be reminded of that and and maybe it was assumed in ways that george uh, was working well since you've already segued a little bit let's talk about the lighter side of the force so things that made us laugh in this movie or comedy around this particular movie lazi you wrote Spaceballs! exclamation <laughs> point so I think I saw Spaceballs when I lived in the States. Uh, so I would have been about nine or something like that. So I'd already seen all of the Star Wars films. And I think I just probably found it the funniest thing <laughs> that I'd ever seen at the time. It is to Star Wars what Galaxy Quest is to Star Trek. Yes, I think that's a very, very fair comparison. And I think that... I think that, you know, I really love a lot of Mel Brooks films as well. I think Robin Hood Men in Tights is extremely funny. I think that um, uh, The Producers is incredible. Uh, and I mean the original Producers, not not so, not so much the, the secondary one. I think he's just a very funny <laughs> producer-director. And the jokes, uh, I'm, I am 100% sure I did not get... 50% of them, if not more, when I was nine years old. I don't think I realised that the, it was very clearly uh, dick jokes with the lightsabers uh, <laughs> or, or the Schwartz, as it was then. I thought that uh, John Candy as Barf the Dog was was hilarious. Uh, Pizza the Hut was the funniest pun that anyone's ever punned. But I definitely didn't realize that John Hurt having an alien burst out of his stomach was, uh, and saying, oh no, not again, was. Uh, and was then it such sings the song on the counter and does the little dance. Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in specifically in, um, in terms of this podcast, I think that Sam is the baby, Tessa is the honey, and I'm the ragtime gal. Is that right? <laughs> Yes, I, I think that that works. I think that that really, really works. I'm going to admit I forgot, but it, it occurred to me that what I should have introduced you as is my father's brother's nephew's cousin's former roommate or <laughs> absolutely nothing. <laughs> Apropos of usually nothing, say to Tessa, I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. Or no, like, again, apropos of nothing, but... <laughs> I, I will often sing the nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> like, 
Lied for it. it is a good parody and it doesn't sometimes parodies will kind of like mess with your perception of the original it doesn't which i think is is what a good parody should do i, I do want to say very very quickly lazi thank you for name checking men in tights which is perhaps not the best but it is my favorite and also with uh, patrick stewart randomly <laughs> showing up at the end <laughs> Sam, what are some of your comedic moments from this film that you enjoy? Well, I mean, you're you're never the same again once you've seen the stormtrooper, you know, hit his head uh, on the on the doorway coming in uh, to to check on the droids, which I'm sure is not in the special edition. There are people who have seen. Star no, Wars. it is. Is it? I'm Did sure. they leave it in? I think it is. I think it. I think it is as iconic as the bit where. Um, Vigo Mortensen breaks his toe kicking an orc helmet. And... <laughs> that is that is not the first nor the last comparison to Lord I... of the Rings. I think we'll have on this podcast. You know, my my favorite things about A New Hope, Star Wars seventy seven, are the unintentional bits of comedy. The part where there's a um, there's a pretty wide medium shot of Darth Vader talking, and when he's finished. He keeps gesturing because clearly the sink has not matched up to whatever the hell it was they thought they were doing when they were shooting. Do you guys know what David Prowse's accent sounds like? Yes. Do you know what a Bristolian accent is? Yes. yes. He's, I, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing though, like the funniest thing to happen in this movie, small leak, the yeah. large leak, very dangerous. There's just that <laughs> just whole exchange. Look How are you? That whole scene. How are you? We're fine The, the boring yeah. conversation anyway. Boring conversation anyway. Yeah, Han Solo has a lot of the great comedy, of course, which includes diving headfirst into the trash chute without knowing um, exactly what's on the other side. And, of course, him running down the hallways with Chewie and then the stormtroopers suddenly realizing that they're being chased by two people and turning around. So... And- so in the special edition or whatever this. version is now, they run around the corner because what happens in the original, I think, is that they run around the corner and the stormtroopers, there's just a wall behind them. So yes. the stormtroopers have to turn around and throw them back. What happens in the special edition is they run around the corner and there's an entire legion of stormtroopers right. behind, which is why they turn around and start screaming back. Which is way. great. I mean, Harrison Ford... He just he does comedy in like just the gruffest, most like exasperated way, which is just perfect for this character. By the way, I love Harrison Ford running. I love Harrison Ford's run as much as I hate Tom Cruise's. (laughs) (laughs) But Tom Cruise running over over a station that is literally a bridge over the River Thames is still pretty. I mean, it looks like Harrison Ford's about to fall over at any point. Like he's just so leaning into it. Tom Cruise looks like. If he wills it just a little bit harder, he will bend time. <laughs> I will say that I I didn't notice it in this film. I, I know it's in a later film specifically, but did we get the Harrison Ford exasperated finger? The no. Did we get that in this film? No. no. Okay. Well, no, we'll, we'll, so. we'll be on the lookout for it. 
Um, one of my favorite things in this film is actually the begin at the beginning when the stormtroopers are looking for the droids on Tatooine, and one of them just pop like just it's just the framing. One of them pops up into the camera, like he's like below the camera, and he like pops up with a gear in one hand and said, "Look, sir, droids." And I don't know why that is like the funniest like set of shots to me like it, it just makes me laugh also every single time. why 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 are bits falling off of c3po <laughs> like, like, I mean... why is he leaving his bits behind yeah i don't i don't know but that brings me to that's 3PO. actually an original part from episode one. Oh yeah that's one of the original parts the true weirdness here is that's not even from the last time he, or this time he was yeah on this Tatooine. time that he was on here so we've talked a lot about C-3PO and R2 on this on this podcast before, but this is, of course, the origin of this pretty iconic duo. And I honestly think some of the best lines between the two of them, like whenever I am like struggling with a task, a lot of times I will be like, no, shut them all down, uh, which is, of course, uh, <laughs> 3PO's like favorite line. What are some of your favorite 3PO R2 moments in this film? Uh- are you referring, by the way, to C-3PO, human-cyborg relations? Yes, I am. <laughs> Use his full title. Nobody else does. Um, Which one's the cyborg? I mean, isn't that funny? There is a cyborg in in Empire, but there's no cyborg in this well, film. Well, technically, Vader. Vader. Vader, Vader. Vader is the cyborg. Yeah. Yeah, okay, technically. Fine. And so, he is his droid, yeah. after all. It's true. That is true. Maybe that's why. I really like R2's replies to 3PO when he's freaking out about the garbage thing. I really love what he tells 3PO there. R2 is once again doing his best against incredible odds. And a lot of those odds happen to be the stupidity of his companions. So like he he is doing good work here, I think. I also have to say that uh, we haven't talked about Anthony Daniels and his uh, role in bringing uh, 3PO to life. But uh, listening to his version of how this was filmed, it sounds like hell. Like, he basically yeah. had to be yeah. bolted into that costume. Like, claustrophobic me is, like, freaking out just thinking about it. Although I will say one of the funniest outtakes that we saw in the documentary was poor Kenny Baker just falling over in the in the R2 <laughs> Um, in the R2 I mean, universe. R2 falling over is regularly good com- it, comedy. It, it is. I f- I found the line that I um, that I've forgotten, which is my favorite, which is, "Don't call me a mindless philosopher, you overweight glob of grease." <laughs> Excellent. The other one is, "This is all your fault somehow." I just know it, um, which is is also unfair and uncalled for. Yeah, and then the other, the final thing I wanted to mention, um, comedy wise, although we've talked about him before, is of course Chewbacca, who we we've talked about him in Solo, but this is his official introduction as well. Uh, by the way, Jarrett, this one's for you. What a Wookiee. <laughs> so, uh, Chewbacca, comedic character, best friend, walking carpet. What do we think? I mean, the coolest gun, as yes. uh, um, as established later as well. Yeah, I mean, it's another sort of character who you interpret via other people i think the 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 really interesting thing and i actually have to look this up about when when groot was first invented but the way that characters 
play off of Chewbacca is very much the way that all the Guardians play off Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy uh, in the way that you can have someone not have to actually say a line, but then you just get the comedy from the reactions that come off the back of it. I don't care what you smell. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Although I will say that considering the fact that he's wearing a prosthetic, Peter Mayhew does manage to convey a lot about this person. There's like a there's a scene where he like tilts his head, which I just find particularly yes. particularly yes. good. It's it's adorable. Yes. Two of my favorite memes come from this and I'll I'll say them before the podcast closes. Uh one of them is my all-time favorite Star Wars meme, which is the one where Vader asks uh you know, who has these like who was in that escape pod and somebody says it's, it appears to be an astromech and a a rather effete protocol droid. And he says, LMAO, those my boys, which is uh, which is my favorite Star Wars meme. The other one, and I can't attribute this tweet, so I'm sorry, but it is a tweet that I read and I think about a lot, which is uh, Lucas describing the cantina. It's just like the scum, villainy. It's just like the darkest place. Like people get killed in there and nobody cares. Uh, okay, all right, all right. What kind of music? Oh, light jazz. Um, which is, you know, uh, but, but that song is also iconic. Yeah. That, that band is doing some good work. Isn't it called jizz? What? Like the, yeah, I think canonically it's called jizz. What? I didn't know this. What? I think that broke me a little bit. Let us end on jizz. It seems fitting. as we as we commonly do. So, um, <laughs> I would I would like to read you a an excerpt from Wikipedia, Tessa. Okay, jizz, <laughs> <laughs> which is jazz with an eye. Uh, yeah, way. I am very aware. Was a was an? Are you? Yes. Jizz was an upbeat, swinging genre of music. What most notably performed. By Figrin Dan and the Modal Nodes, which that's who we see in Star Wars, and the Max Rebo Band. Subgenres of jizz include jizz whale <laughs> and glitz. Also, I think they're called sperm. I, th- I think also, they're called sperm whales, actually, Sam. Also. The music for Jats <laughs> was reminiscent of or in some ways similar to Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I've learned something new today and I'm a little horrified. So that feels like a good place to end this podcast, especially since I'm not sure Sam can speak anymore. What do you think the Star Wars Jizz version of Chicago was like? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Coruscant. Yeah. Coruscant, yeah. Tomorrow. The, he had it coming stays the same, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, next time, tomorrow, we're going to be talking about The Empire Strikes Back with Melissa. In the meantime, where can people find you, Lazi? 
Um, I'm at Mean Englishman on Twitter. I couldn't think of a funny enough name because my brain has been broken by the last two minutes. And you are returning to this very podcast, correct, for The Force Awakens. So I shall awaken once more. Be back. <laughs> I love so that the, you're starting the... two trilogies. Like you're doing the start of yeah. uh, the original trilogy and the start of the sequel trilogy. The return of the Lazi will happen in the episode The Lazi Awakens. The Lazi Awakens. I love it. Uh, to trail for that, I quite like J.J. Abrams, so I think there's going to be a fun conversation. It'll be, it'll be something. <laughs> it'll be divisive for sure. Hopefully not longer than this episode. Sam, where can people find you online and in their headphones? You can find me online, on Twitter, at Sam underscore Morris 9, and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can also find more from me and Sam on moviejohn.com. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back and may the force be with you.